Hello and welcome to Adrian Goldberg's talk show. Amazing real life stories, celebrity interviews, politics, investigations. The common thread is, I hope they're all interesting. This time discussing one of the world's most powerful and controversial individuals, the billionaire George Soros, a financial speculator and philanthropist, frequently demonised by those on the right and far right of politics. He's got on the wrong side of conspiracy theorist Alex Jones and Fox News anchor Bill O'Reilly. By any standard, Soros has lived a remarkable life. His Jewish family escaped persecution by the Nazis in their native Hungary only by changing their name and pretending to be Christian. In London, he was once so poor he had to apply to a Jewish charity for financial assistance, an experience which, as we'll hear, has coloured his own attitude to giving ever since. Through his Open Society Foundation, he supported progressive causes around the world. He attempted to broaden the political debate in Eastern Europe before the fall of the Berlin Wall and helped fund the Remain campaign in the referendum on a UK membership of the EU. Soros also played a key role in bringing to justice those responsible for war crimes in the former Yugoslavia and has donated tens of millions of dollars in humanitarian aid. But as I say, Soros has many critics. He was called the man who broke the Bank of England after causing a collapse in Stirling on Black Wednesday in 1992. He's been blamed for causing a recession in Thailand. Although he now lives in the United States, he has been described as an enemy of the state in his native Hungary. He has even been falsely accused of collaborating with the Nazis. Emily Tamkin's book, The Influence of Soros, Politics, Power and the Struggle for an Open Society, is published in the UK in July 2020. It is a very rich book in both senses of the word, full of life and colour. So, Emily, welcome along. Why did you decide to take this on? Uh, thank you so much for having me on the podcast, first of all. Second of all, you know, my I live here in the United States and I was reporting on foreign affairs at the time, but my research background is in Russia and Eastern Europe. And so I was watching these these conspiracy theories spread not only from fringe figures, but from people who were at the heads of state first in Central and Eastern Europe and Russia, and then over here. And so when someone came to me and asked if I would be interested in writing a book on the subject, I said, yes, of course. I think his his life itself is fascinating, but the various things that people have projected onto him at various points in his almost 90 years are as fascinating. And why has he attracted these conspiracy theories? And what are they? To, to take the first question first, I think that there are a few reasons for this. The first is that as a Hungarian-born, New York-based man of finance who is Jewish, there is something about him, without him having done anything, onto whom, onto which everybody can project something, right? So let's say if you're Hungarian, well, he's Jewish, and also he left Hungary. If you're in Romania or Slovakia, well, they don't like Hungarians necessarily. That's because it's a minority in those in those countries. I shouldn't, you know, kind of paint everybody in those countries with, with the same brush. But, but it, it, that's something controversial, and he's Jewish. You come here to the United States, and it's, well, he's foreign-born. If you're a populist, it's, well, he works in finance. So there's kind of something for everybody to, to not like, first of all. Second of all, he has these, these kind of two roles where he's been 
fabulously successful uh, in finance and then has also given so much away to, as you said, progressive and liberal causes. So I think there's that tension that some people find questionable or confusing and that and that attracts attention. And then the other reason is that he he has he has given money to causes that allow more people to participate in the democratic process and civil society in the conversation on who gets to decide the direction of various countries. And I mean, whether or not you think that a billionaire should be able to play that role, the reality is that there have been people who would not have been able to do those things who did. And that the other reality is that there are people particularly on the right who don't want them to be participating. And therefore it's, it's sort of, well, they're only here because of Soros. Yeah, so he's funded progressive causes all around the world. Of course, before the fall of the Berlin Wall, he did things which many people on the right might well have applauded. I mean, was it in Hungary that virtually all of the photocopiers in the country, which were used by dissidents, were funded through Soros's foundations? He was a he was a force for progressive good, as the right would see it, in in helping to further democracy. Yeah. And not only, I mean, what he said was that the brilliant thing about the photocopiers was that people who weren't necessarily dissidents were able to act like dissidents. So the the Soros Fund set up in, uh, not Soros Fund, the Soros Foundation, which is what it was called in Hungary because open society was considered, the name open society was considered too political in Hungary in the 1980s. So his foundation in Hungary sets up in 1984 and one of their trademarks was providing photocopiers. And the state kind of couldn't say no because they were badly in need of more photocopiers. But what that did was it it released the state's monopoly, I guess is the word, on who could who could disseminate what information. So, yes, you would think that people who are like America defeating Eastern Europe and Russia and the Cold War would support that. But I think I think what we've seen is that how can I put this delicately? that actually those people have something in common with Hungarian authorities in the 1980s, which is that they want, they similarly want a monopoly on who can have access to power information. Yeah, but the right would have applauded him in in the 80s because he was helping those who stood up to the authoritarian left in Eastern Europe. But when he attempts to spread a similarly progressive message today, the people on the right, particularly in the United States, see him as a challenge to their authority. So it's okay if he helps to challenge authority elsewhere, but not not if it affects them directly. Mm Mm-hmm. And also, I should say that today, while they might have supported it in in the 80s, today you have right-wing political figures here in the United States who have criticized Soros for, for his work abroad. Let's go back to the basics of his story, because that is a fascinating tale in itself, isn't it? The fact that he managed to, with his family, escape Nazi persecution in Hungary during World War II. Yes. So he's born in 1930 in Hungary. And, you know, he's born at this time when Hungarian Jews in the Austro-Hungarian Empire had had been Hungarians, right? They were some of the most assimilated Jews in Europe. They are part of this great glittering Budapest society. And then Hungary is on the losing side of World War One. Basically, you have the Hungarian version of the Treaty of Versailles, the Treaty of Trianon, and Hungary loses a bunch of its territory, like uh, truly a lot of its territory. And many Hungarians find themselves now minorities in a foreign country. It's this traumatic thing. And 
the long story short is that Hungary, uh, Hungarians look around and blame the Jews for this, uh, despite the fact that, you know, Jews had also fought in, in World War I and had previously considered themselves not necessarily Jews, but Hungarians. So, you know, Soros's father, Tivadar, he had been in a, he had served in, he'd gone off to fight in World War I, finds himself in a, uh, a prison camp in Siberia, escapes escapes into the Russian revolution, somehow finds his way back home and gets back wanting just like a quiet life, but indeed cannot have one because history has other plans for him. So when he sees the starting to happen, he says, you know, that, that my last name is Schwartz. I'm going to change it such that it is less obviously Jewish sounding. So he changes the family's last name from Schwartz to Soros, which his father was involved in the Esperanto, the, you know, this, this language it was a movement for a language that kind of transcended national borders. And, and the word Soros is the future of the verb to soar. So maybe there's some projection for his sons, his sons there. But anyway, once, you know, Hungary's allied with the Nazis at first, because they, their line was, oh, we had to be, we lost all this territory in Trianon, we have to get it back. Eventually, Hitler suspecting Hungary of, of jumping ship or of perhaps not being as loyal to the cause as he would have liked invades. So the Nazis are in Hungary. And Tivadar, who again, is like, I survived so much. And I know that what we can do, he has this line in his own book, um, Masquerade, which is actually a great read if any of of your listeners are interested. He basically says, we can't submit to Hitler's fury, right? We can't, in this case, playing by the rules is going to get us killed. So we need to make our own rules. So what he does, he splits up the family, he finds different houses for them to hide in Budapest and the surrounding areas. He also finds all of these documents that are either real documents from Christians that they've taken and assigned to people, not just the family, but also friends and friends of friends, and also finds forged documents. So that's how the, the Soros family lives through the war. They're in hiding, but they also have, they're, they're living out as, as Christians. And this is where, you know, I came across many a conspiracy theory in the course of writing this book. And to me, the cruelest one was that a he was a teenager, he was 13, 14 years old, that a teenager who was Jewish and was hiding out had collaborated with the Nazis is to me the, the the cruelest, the most vulgar of these conspiracy theories. What had happened was that he was at one point in a house and the the like head of the family went to do, go do inventory of a, a Jewish house and Soros had to come along. And that was how he was confronted with that fact on a 60 minutes interview many years ago and was kind of taken by surprise. And that's how that conspiracy theory got started. But in reality, what he was doing in Hungary was hiding out. And what his father was doing was helping other people hide out. After the war, he decided that Hungary wasn't for him. He decided to spread his wings a little bit and he he traveled to London and initially had his eyes on settling in London. Yes. So after Nazi rule comes, you know, Soviet socialist rule, which he found restrictive, he gets out, he goes to London. And for the first couple of years, it's it's very hard. His English is not up to par. He's written that he never wanted to like be friends with the Nazis or Soviets. So the fact that they didn't accept him wasn't, wasn't crushing. But the fact that he couldn't be in this great intellectual London at first, that that was very hard. But eventually he's able to go into the London School of Economics, which is where he meets in, in his third year, he takes a tutor, and that tutor is Karl Popper. Karl Popper wrote this book called uh, Open Society and Its Enemies. And the general idea is that nobody can ever really know anything for certain. So we should not be embracing ideologies or 
this certainty or that certainty. And instead, what we should have is a democracy where everybody participates and together we try to get to the most perfect understanding that we can. And this obviously made a very profound effect on Soros because his foundations are the Open Society Foundations. And that idea then that in a society, everybody should have a voice, that a range of opinions should be heard, which obviously allies pretty closely to modern Western social democracies. That has been the the underlying philosophical core of, of his philanthropic life. Yes, absolutely. If you want, if you look at the sort of common thread between all of his philanthropic giving, it's this idea that everybody, no matter what, you know, what ethnicity, what religion, what race, you should be empowered to fully participate in society. And maybe he does that through giving a scholarship. Maybe it's by paying for student newspaper. Maybe it's by providing a photocopier, but it's, it's about who gets to participate in civil society and in democratic society, and his philanthropic work has been expanding that who. And the way in which he's exercised that philanthropy has been through these open society foundations, as I mentioned, providing photocopiers in Hungary, which in some cases were used by dissidents. In some cases, it's been used to help fund students to learn and to travel and learn abroad. I know we had an an unsuccessful attempt at that in South Africa, but ironically, Hungary's current president, who was declared an enemy of the state, was a beneficiary of Soros' philanthropy. Yes. So he starts out in 1979, he sets this, this charitable trust up, and it's open society. And the first, as you mentioned, the first venture is in South Africa because it's an apartheid state. And he says, oh, this is kind of the perfect place to, to test out my philanthropic philosophy. But the university that he went to distributed funds such that they didn't actually help Black South African students as much as, as, much as he had thought they would. So he goes to Eastern Europe and he speaks Hungarian, so sets up in Hungary. And yes, Viktor Orban, who's now prime minister and kind of the champion of anti-Soros conspiracy theories, went to Oxford on a Soros scholarship, which, you know, it is... Who, who knows what Victor Orban would have been and had he participated in society as as he has, were it not for, for Soros' support. It's worth just going back to London when we talk about Soros' philanthropy, because there was one particular incident, wasn't there, when he was a very poor student in London, which has influenced how he's distributed money ever since. Yes. So it's to do with the Jewish Board of Governors. And at one point, he had broken his leg and... The Jewish Board of Governors said, fine, you can, there was some back and forth about whether he could collect the money and, and or get money from them. And they said, fine, but you have to come walk up all these stairs and and take it. Which given that he had a broken leg was a bit like saying, we, we don't quite believe you or we're not right. quite happy about giving you the money. Right. So he writes a letter and says, you know, I'm just hurt that this is how one Jew would treat another Jew. And then they start sending him checks so that he does not need to walk up the stairs And he kind of burned from this experience, just keeps collecting the checks long after his leg is healed. So this influences his thinking on philanthropy in two ways. One, he believed that charity can turn its recipients into not recipients, but objects of charity, right? So they're they're trying to just take and take and take. And so when open society established itself, he kind of, you know, now I think part of the reason that there is this uncertainty and this mystery around open society that can lend itself 
if there is a malicious actor to conspiracy theories. But originally that was by design, right? Because he didn't want, uh, he wanted it to kind of like pop up, right? There's a, there's a, an open society grantee. There's an open society grantee and not have it be so formulaic and bureaucratic and able to be used by quote unquote objects of charity. The second way is that he, or the second way in which it influenced his thinking on philanthropy is that Soros does not typically give to quote unquote Jewish organizations. And part of, I spoke to, to Jakob Finzi, who is in Sarajevo and during the war in the, in the early nineties, he helped get all of these people out of the city and he was running a Jewish organization in the early nineties before he took over and opened the open society office there, which he no longer runs. But what he told me was that Soros told him that this was the first Jewish organization he had given to in part because he had these negative experiences with a Jewish group when he, when he was very young. And what he told Jakob Finzi was, I expect you to use this money, not just to help Jews. The reason that I, I stress this point is that Soros's Jewishness in relation to, to Judaism and relationship to Israel is, is often brought up. And I think, I mean, what he has said is, I was persecuted as a, as a teenager for being Jewish. Of course, that made an impression on me. But it's, it, it wasn't by going to, he didn't decide to give money specifically to his ethnicity or his religion or to the state of Israel. And rather, the way that he interpreted it was whichever group finds itself under the wheel at a given point in time, that's where he gave the money, right? So it was less tribal, if I can use that word, and or and less state-based and more about these universal values. But that issue of the lack of transparency has shadowed him, hasn't it? Because, as you say, he didn't want to have a strict formulaic process by which people could apply for grants from his foundations, because that allows people then to understand and game the system in the way that, ironically, he had gamed the Jewish charity when he was in London. The downside of that is that very often the people who run his foundations in in different parts of the world and the people who are beneficiaries of his philanthropy are people who are kind of on the inside. They know that this is how you ask for the money. This is, they know this is where you go from it. It emerges from his own real life experience, but can feel to people who are not supportive of Soros that it's all a little bit cliquey, all a little bit insidery, and that he he backs the people who are his mates or who he likes. Well, I want to push back against the word lack of transparency, because I'm not sure that that is quite fair, because they did publish where the money was going. And I think especially as they've grown, it has gotten more bureaucratic. That said, yes, one of the criticisms of him and of open society is that when he was setting up a new foundation somewhere, he kind of found these people through word of mouth, or they were like, he knew somebody who was in this city, and they introduced him to someone and that person then became the head of the open society in in Warsaw or wherever, which you know, when I was going around doing interviews for this book, it was like, it was this amazing group, like it, truly an amazing collection of people, but they tended to be from a certain class and they were, they tended to be based in the cities and they tended to be, and you know, he would, the the answer that people always give, always gave when I asked about, there's this outside guy bringing in all this money, like how does that work was, well, he put everything in the hands of the, the Bosnians or the Poles or the Hungarians, but it was a specific subset. And that, that is one of the criticisms for him that like, it's, it's a, it's promotion of this 
intelligentsia set that is not necessarily going to be able to truly spread the message throughout that society, that country, that nation. Mm. Although in another context, I think this was in relation to when he decided to give tens of millions of dollars in humanitarian aid and questions were being asked about whether it was appropriate for one wealthy individual to donate so much and by implication have such a level of influence you got a bit of pushback didn't you people said to you well look these are questions that you can ask in the rich global north I got pushback every time I asked this question. Uh, in Sarajevo, they truly looked at me like I was like out of my mind, right? They were like, that's great that he gave this money. Like we were dying. What are you, what are you talking about? And similarly here in the United States, I, I, there's a chapter in the book on, uh, on criminal justice reform and the money that he gave starting in the late 90s in Baltimore to get communities to think of drug use and addiction as a medical problem and not a criminal one. And, you know, I, I made the point that there's this wealthy white guy coming in and giving money. People who were caught up in this were not wealthy and they by and large were not white. And I was told, like, <laughs> we live in a capitalist system. So whether or not you like that, we need to get the money from somewhere. And we got it from him. So, you know, I grapple with this tension quite a lot in the book. There's the uh, there's the criticism of him coming in and giving all this money. There's the reality of, well, that's how society is. And if you want to improve it, here's this person with all this money. And then there is in my mind, the question of, okay, but where do we go from here, right? Do we just accept that that's forevermore the case and that we're always going to be reliant on benevolent billionaires? Or do we try to change the system such that we're not reliant on Soros or whoever? I mean, I argue in the book that they're will never be another person quite like him, but whoever the next, you know, benevolent, liberal-minded billionaire is. Sure. But if you are suffering from starvation in Sarajevo, or you're a victim of persecution in Eastern Europe, or if you're poor and black and suffering from injustice in Baltimore, and somebody's offering to help you, you're not going to be asking too many questions about where that person earned the money. Oh, I mean, his money in Sarajevo, right, yeah. His money in Sarajevo went to keep lights on in the hospital and make sure that people got water and also provided newsprint and like arts festivals so that people didn't feel like they were just animals killing one another, as one person put it to me. So am I, you know, sitting here in my apartment in Washington, D.C., like writing my little book on Soros, going to turn back to that person and say, actually, it's not good because it shows the inequality of society. Like, no, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. I, I want to talk about some of the quite serious criticisms that can be leveled at Soros. And so far, this has been a, a pretty positive interview about him. And I, I do want to reflect the nuance which is there in the book and the conflict and the tension that is there. But before we move on to that, one of the most remarkable things I read in the book and something about which I had previously been unaware was his role in bringing to justice some of the worst actors in the wars that followed the breakup of the former Yugoslavia. Yes. So they brought on board to Open Society, this, or actually to run Open Society, a man by the name of Arya Nair, who argued that what happened in Sarajevo was a genocide and that they, the people who were in charge for all the injustice perpetrated should be tried accordingly. And basically, Arya Nair got Soros to agree to give money and pushed the UN to establish, with that money, 
what became the ICTY, so the tribunal in which war criminals were tried. There is a great book by Julian Borger called The Butcher's Trail, where you know it, it wasn't like people just turned up at the ICTY. Uh, and in many cases, they went into hiding in communities that were very sympathetic to them because they would go into kind of like the the, you know, the majority Serb community or the majority Croat community and hide out there. But uh, eventually these people who, who committed true uh, atrocities were brought to justice. And the thing that occurred to me was like, if Arya Nair hadn't had that idea and if Soros hadn't said yes, would, would that have happened? It's disturbing that it, it took that in my, in my opinion, right. That it was like, Oh, we had the United Nations, but actually what it took was this billionaire, and the very dedicated man he had running his foundations. But on the other hand, it's like, well, there was justice there. And, and isn't it good that somebody did set up the ICTY and the ICC, the International Criminal Court as well? And it did include some very high profile actors in the former Yugoslavia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, Radovan Karadzic, Slobodan Milosevic, like these people were convicted at the ICTY or sorry, arrested and brought to the, the ICTY. The famous case a few years ago where the person who was on trial said, I'm not guilty and drank poison like at the court. That was an ICTY. I don't mean to laugh at it and make make it sound glib, but like that was an ICTY trial for crimes committed in the Balkans during the wars. Sure. And I suppose it just underlines that fact that if people are critical of an individual billionaire philanthropist using his economic muscle around the world, the fact is that Milosevic and others would not have been brought to justice without that money. Right. And and you can say that's not right. And that, and, you know, I, I'm personally very sympathetic to this argument that there should be other channels working to bring people to justice and that there should be other and to get justice for communities and that there, you know, we shouldn't be reliant on this one person and his money. But the reality is that they were. And so what are we like, what are we talking about this hypothetical world where, you know what I mean, where where we're not dealing with the hypothetical, we're dealing with this tragedy of humanity that happened and what people did in the fallout. Just explain to me and I'm doing this partly because I genuinely don't really understand it. And I also think it might be helpful to our listeners how Soros has made his money. I understand that it's financial and that it's called speculation. Mm-hmm. What does it actually involve? To start out, he's one of the great hedge fund managers of of all time. And basically in a hedge fund, you take different positions on different company shares in a particular industry. And what you're doing is hedging against macroeconomic factors. You can take a long position, which is where you're holding on to an investment and the idea is that it will increase in value. Alternatively, you can short something. When you short something, you sell something that you don't actually own and the intention is buying it at a later date for a lower value. But what that selling does is it puts downward pressure on whatever the thing is. So if you're selling something short, you can make the prophecy kind of fulfill itself. However, there can be other people who come in and say, well, actually that's valuable and they drive it up and now you're kind of stuck holding the bag. So it can be quite risky. But with the breaking of the so-called breaking of the Bank of England, the reason that, that was such a brilliant, from a financial perspective, right, kind of leaving the the ethics of it to the side, the reason it was such a brilliant financial bet was that the the pound was in a band, right, the ERM, and so you could only go so high or so low unless you crashed out. But you couldn't, like, it wasn't like the pound was going to become super valuable because it couldn't it couldn't break out of the band. So what they said was, oh, 
we can drive it down and maybe they'll have to break out, but it's not going to rise so high that we're going to lose a lot of money on this thing. And indeed, various sort of indicators like the Germans' unwillingness to tweak their own currency um, because they had just done so with the lira, they didn't want to do so again. And they were kind of the, the German mark was at the time like the beloved thing. They were able to say, oh, we can we can make a really big bet on this and make <laughs> a lot, quite a significant amount of money. So the ERM, the exchange rate mechanism, was a, a monetary mechanism in Europe which predated the euro and was designed to keep the currencies of the main EU nations in broad alignment. And Soros takes a bet that the pound sterling could be driven down in value and effectively forced out of the RM, which is what happened. I'm just, I'm just trying to understand what what mechanism he uses. How, how does he do that? Uh, they shorted it, so I mean, they they basically sold off a lot of sterling, and it was more sterling than than the bank thought that they were going to be selling. So every time they did a hike, every time the Bank of England did a hike, it was not kind of not commensurate with what was what was coming. So the bank would increase interest rates to try and make the, the pound a, a bit more valuable, a mm-hmm. little bit scarcer. But but Soros was effectively flooding the international market with with pounds, making them much more freely available. And, and therefore, because they were much more freely available, but each pound was worth less. And that drives down the value of the pound. Exactly. And the result of that is? Is that Britain left the, left the ERM. So there's kind of two ways to look at it. One is that Black Wednesday eventually leads to White Wednesday, and that because of the speculation, the powers that, that were were kind of like, oh, we have to get our financial house back in order, and that it ended up being good for the British economy. However, there are some who say, including people who were involved in Germany at the time, which is a bit rich, given their unwillingness to get involved, that this kind of puts Britain on track for Brexit because you have them breaking away from this early economic union, um, and that this is an early point of tension in in the relationship between Britain and continental Europe, and that Soros, even with his money given to the Remain campaign, is thus a part of what eventually ends in, in Brexit. Yeah, there's a certain irony there, given that he supported Remain later on. But exactly. We'll part that for a moment. For the UK, wealthy country, this causes a, a bit of a, a minor upheaval, a political upheaval. It costs the Chancellor of the Exchequer his job, if I remember correctly, Norman Lamont. But in other countries of the world, that kind of financial speculation has real-life, long-lasting consequences. And you mentioned in your book, for example, the run on the BART in Thailand. Thailand is the other big one where they go and they realise they can do this, and they do. Now, there are some people who say... You know, so for example, Sebastian Malaby has this amazing book on hedge funds and it covers this and it's it's called More Money Than God. And and he says that the big question is why they didn't short it by more, right? Like why they didn't go harder on the Thai bot. And again, there are people who argue, well, this could have fixed the Thai economy had the people who were in charge taken the warning sign. But the reality is that they didn't. The Thai economy crashes and it, it arguably creates a ripple effect throughout Asia and you have the Asian financial crisis of the late 1990s. Now, what Mahathir said, Mohammed Mahathir said in Malaysia of, oh, this Jew is trying to ruin Malaysia, you know, obviously that is not what happened. And actually that is not reflected by the position that they took on the Malaysian ringgit. But 
yes, they did have a role in the Asian financial crisis. I, I don't really think that there's any, I personally don't think there's any way around saying that sentence. Right. And that role then involves them playing the markets in the, the way that we have described themselves making huge amounts of money from it, but causing mass unemployment in a country mm-hmm. like Thailand. Is is that is it as blunt as that? Yes. And I mean, you know, and people will say, well, he didn't do it in Indonesia and he didn't do it in South Korea. OK, but he, you know, not just he, the, the whole fund, but they did in, in Thailand. And I think the, the fund was not a philanthropic project. The way that Soros explain, has explained this throughout the years, I mean, one, he himself has, has said that perhaps speculation of this kind shouldn't be allowed. So I don't, this is not a criticism that he himself has not made. A, B, the way that he defends it is that, you know, I was a player in the financial financial stage made and I performed according to those rules. And then in my political and philanthropic life, I play according to those rules. And the point that I make in the book is that is that he was such a large player in the financial side of things that those decisions spilled over into the political side. Right. So you kind of can't if you're if you're I don't personally think that working in finance is like evil or or anti-open society, or there are some people who think who take that position. I do not. What I do think is that Quantum Fund, his his hedge fund, was so big and he was so effective at speculating and at shorting currencies that there were political consequences for it, and that you kind of can't separate his day job from the rest of the world that he was living in and and giving money to improve. Yeah, and when you say political consequences, human consequences. Exactly. uh, This just is the central contradiction, isn't it, of his life and I think of your book that you can say, well, I'm only playing by the rules, which, of course, Soros has done. Nobody's accused him of doing anything illegal in the well, finance. some people do, but I, I am not. <laughs> <laughs> but in this context, by causing the run on sterling, by driving down the, the bat in Thailand, he was doing what people, what speculators do on financial markets every day, but on a grand scale. That central contradiction between, well, I'm obeying the rules, I'm, I'm doing my job, I'm making money, which is what the investors who invest in my hedge fund expect, versus, well, if there's something terrible in the world going on or there's an injustice, I will spend some of that money seeking to right that injustice. There is just an unsatisfactory contradiction there, isn't there? Yes, I, I agree. And I think that he maintains that that kind of there isn't, but I think if you look at, and I, so I'm not going to say that he understands that there is, but I think if you look at it, you know, for example, his calls for a wealth tax, there is some appreciation of the fact that you cannot have the kind of society that he is giving money to create and have people who can single-handedly create this kind of economic and political and human, as you point out, chaos. That is controversial in some quarters, but that is how I see it. Have you met George Soros? Do you have a view of him as a man? I did briefly meet him once. He did not sit down for an interview. The interview was over email. So, and, you know, because the book is about his influence, I don't, I, I talk a little bit about his marriages and divorces, and but it's it's not a, it's not a personal biography. 
one of my interviewees said the difference between him and everybody else is that he knows when to go big. And I think that that's what, I mean, that's, that's kind of what you see in all these different areas of his life is this, you know, whatever the, the enigma or the mystery is, what's, what's not a mystery to me, at least, is that when he identifies the thing that he's going to do, that's, he, he does it. And very often that identification comes before everybody else has identified it. Right. So the threat that, nationalism posed in Central and Eastern Europe. I think he identified that early on. You know, if you look at what he did in the 2004 election with democratic spending, we're spending for the, to try to defeat George W. Bush. A lot of it was about this like targeting swing states and get out the vote efforts. That was kind of early on in terms of that kind of political giving. The Bank of England, you know, the, the breaking of the bank, you can criticize it, but he did identify the bet and and make it and make it larger than other people would have. So that I think is is my assessment of him as a man while acknowledging that he and I aren't like hanging out for, for tea. Before we finish, there's one question I've got to ask you, and it must have occurred to you as well. Why does George Soros do it? He's a billionaire. He could be spending what time he has left on this earth sunning himself on a big yacht. Why does he engage in philanthropy on a massive scale, even though it very often draws great criticism towards him? It's a good question. You know, I, I think when he started out, he did not necessarily intend to be doing it at this scale for this long, right? So he starts out in the in the 70s as a very successful hedge fund finance man, and he's running around, he tells the story where he's running out around London, and he's in pain, and he's like, my heart might give out from the stress that if I die now for making money, like wh- for the sake of making money, what is that? You know, I'd, I'd rather I'd rather it be for something. And so he decided to get involved in philanthropy. And he said, what really matters to me is the concept of an open society. And then he sets up the charitable trust and goes to South Africa and, and so on and so forth. But originally, the foundations weren't meant to last this long. Actually, the only thing that he thought that was going to last when he started it that would outlast him when he started it was Central European University, which has now mostly been kicked out of Hungary by by Mr. Orban's government. But I think as he went along, he kind of saw more places where where society was not as open as it should be. So I think whatever criticisms you have of George Soros, and I obviously have my fair share of them, he's committed to this cause, right? And this cause is helping to create and helping to maintain liberal democratic societies in which everybody is free and empowered to participate. I did I did an interview with uh, with Istvan Rev, who was an early employee of CEU and is now their archivist. And he said to me when I asked about this, you know, this tension that we've been discussing, he said, would it have been better if he had spent his money on paintings? And again, for, for all that you can say about Soros, he's not picked up and to- picked up his toys and gone home. He's not He's not spent all that money on paintings. He spent it on, on, and still continues to spend it on open society. Really interesting. Thank you so much for your time, Emily. The book is called The Influence of Soros, Politics, Power and the Struggle for an Open Society by Emily Tamkin. You can follow Emily on Twitter at Emily C. Tamkin. I'm Adrian Goldberg. You can follow me on Twitter at Goldberg Radio. Or if you want to drop me an email, maybe suggest a story or two, get in touch. It's goldbergradio at gmail.com. And if you do want to sponsor this podcast as well, I'd love to hear from you. Either way, 
Thank you very much indeed for listening and we'll see you next time. Emily, thank you as well. Cheers.